You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Domecast. I'm Colin Campbell from The Insider. We're here to do a pre-election edition of Domecast uh, to discuss all the the races coming up in the state of uh, early voting and uh, various other fun aspects of, uh, of what we're seeing out there on the campaign trail. So joining me to talk with about that is Lauren Horsch of The Insider and Will Doran, uh, Rashan Aish, and Andy Spey of The News and Observer. So let's start off with uh, early voting. We're about a solid week or so into the early voting process with a couple weeks, a uh, week and a half at least, to go on uh, people wanting to get their votes in before Election Day. Um, so what are we seeing as far as the uh, turnout numbers? Uh, is this the forecasted blue wave for Democrats or uh, something else entirely? We're definitely having a wave. I don't know if it's a blue wave or if it's a red wave or maybe a purple wave. Um, but what you've seen is, I mean, really numbers are just way up, uh, especially compared to past midterms, but even compared to some presidential elections. I mean, people are really interested. Uh, you know, we've seen the numbers from the, the mail-in ballots have been way, way, way higher than people probably expected them to be. Uh, and then obviously early voting, uh, you know, the numbers have been crazy. We've seen all these photos of, you know, long lines, and, you know, first thing in the morning, there's already a line, you know, just, you know, on the early voting days, let alone election day. So I think you're definitely seeing a ton of interest uh, from people on this. And, you know, we'll have to, you know, obviously wait and see, uh, (laughs) you know, which party uh, comes out ahead. Um, And there's also something to be said. uh, You know, we we don't know for sure if it's just a sign that people are moving more away from voting on Election Day, moving towards early voting, especially since this year North Carolina has had a longer early voting period than in past years. Um, So it could be that we see really high early voting turnout, but maybe we don't see as high turnout on election day itself. And then the numbers are kind of similar as in past years, or maybe we'll also see super high turnout on election day and, you know, everyone will be shocked at the turnout levels. Yeah. Are we seeing, uh, I guess the forecast was that Democrats were going to come out in droves and potentially Republicans might be less motivated to vote. Um, Are we seeing any of that or... I mean, I think early on we saw a lot of Democrats coming out to vote and they were saying it's, you know, because of the enthusiasm, but we're seeing, you know, kind of those levels drop off. Um, And Michael Bitzer from Catawba College, he does a lot of the number crunching um, under old North State politics on Twitter, and he's a great resource for anyone. Um, And he described this, you know, this midterm election as more of a presidential year than a, you know, an average midterm year. and so I think, you know, 840,000 ballots have been accepted so far. Um, I don't have the party breakdown in front of me, but it's, you know, now everyone's turning out. I mean, yeah, did, the it, percentages it, are tracking fairly close to the percentage of people registered with the party. So mm-hmm. I think you it, something like, you know, Democrats are 40 percent of the electorate, 42 percent of the people who are casting ballots so far were Democrats. So yeah, and, you, and you're seeing that with the Republican side, too, from what I can tell from Bitzer's numbers. So, I mean, yes, we did have a blue wave early on, but that that wave kind of has, you know, leveled out a little bit. And, you know, like Will said, we really have to wait until Election Day comes in. We don't we don't know what that will be. And the old adage of you have to wait to see the turnout. Yes, it's a cliche, but. That really matters a lot. Yeah, and when you have unaffiliated as sort of a very growing voting block, um, that makes it hard to predict. 
because um, you don't know how many of those people are, are voting for Democrats or Republicans. And well, if they're breaking strongly one way or the other, that's probably what decides the well, election. And especially, you know, between the new voters, the people who are voting for the first time, those 18 to 21 year olds, and then millennials, you see them increasingly being unaffiliated voters. I think of the what are called like Gen Z right now, the 18 to 21 year olds who might be voting in their ele- in this election for the first time. They're 46 percent unaffiliated. Um, and then millennials are about like 40% unaffiliated in North Carolina. So that's really gonna, if, if they can get the youth vote out, it'll be interesting to see, you know, what party ends up getting all of that. Yeah. Another thing I've been watching was looking at how Hurricane Florence had impacted uh, voting turnout. Cause obviously the counties in the Eastern part of the state, which includes some fairly competitive races uh, were hit pretty hard. And so the question was, if people are no longer living in their County, do they uh, still show up to vote in this election? Or is that not really a priority? And so far, uh, some of the hardest hit counties are tracking about where they've done in the past, uh, Columbus and Robison, both in terms of the numbers and uh, in terms of the sort of anecdotal comments I've heard from some of the candidates down there is uh, doing pretty well. I think four counties are down, but they're all very small counties. So it's a little bit hard to tell, like in some place like Hyde or Jones County, uh, whether that number is uh, statistically significant at this stage of the game or not. So uh, that's another uh, thing to watch as we go forward. Um, of course, we're in the thick of campaign season, so there's a lot of uh, back and forth at this point on a variety of issues. Um, and it seems like uh, one of the, the top issues for the campaigns, and uh, as best we can tell for voters as well this year, is health care. Um, and so there's a, a lot of uh, claims being made in mailers and ads and various other forums uh, as people attack their opponents for not being pro-healthcare enough or having good healthcare policy. So Andy, you've fact-checked some of these. What claims are seeming to be the, the most popular and are they actually true? Well, from the Democrats, you'll see a lot of claims that Republicans have blocked care for North Carolinians. And that stems from uh, mainly the fact that Republicans have refused to expand Medicaid, which some s- experts say w- could increase care for uh, 300,000 to half a million people. Uh, and so you'll see mailers and commercials with various uh, iterations of that claim. Republicans are not caring for North Carolinians. North Carol- Republicans have blocked care, whatever. On the Republican side, they're pushing back Uh, mostly focusing on a bill that was filed last year and thought to be dead, but resurrected this year, that would study the effects of a single-payer system in North Carolina. Now, obviously, it it was paid no attention to until election season came around this, I think, June or July. Lauren wrote about it, and uh, I believe it was uh, Representative David Lewis who asked – the uh, fiscal research staff at the legislature to just study what the effects of it would be. And they found that it would cost about $72 billion uh, to enact a a single-payer system in North Carolina. Well, there were only 10 Democrats that sponsored that bill, no Republicans. Uh, One of the Democrats took her name off it. That was uh, Bobby Richardson, uh, and she's in a tight race in a uh, district that I think leans Republican now. And so Republicans have taken that information, that bill, uh, which says that a single payer system would cost $72 billion, and applied it to uh, across dozens of uh, races across North Carolina. So even candidates who haven't held office before are having attack ads against them saying, you know, uh, 
this liberal running against insert Republican incumbent uh, wants to spend seventy two billion on a single payer system, and they've made that claim because some uh, Democrats who are running for office have signed this pledge on FutureNow.org. Now, FutureNow has is left a left leaning advocacy group that has about seven or eight goals. And they include they, they talk about infrastructure, they talk about healthcare, they talk about uh, I think taxes, but on the healthcare front, they say they want affordable universal healthcare, but they don't use the word single payer. And uh, when we called Future Now, they told us that they've never endorsed specific legislation, whether it's you know Bernie Sanders' famous Medicare for All or uh, the the plan that was introduced in North Carolina. They want coverage for everyone. Uh, that's what universal health care means. Uh, they haven't put forth their preferred mode or method for doing that. And so Republicans look at that pledge that many Democrats have signed. I think it's upwards of 60. And then they tie it to that bill that said single payer would cost $72 billion. And they say, look, look at all these Democrats who want universal health care. That would cost $72 billion. And so PolitiFact looked at that and checked it and uh, gave it a false claim because there are so many degrees of separation there between Democrats who supported the bill, which were only 10 of them. The bill did not enact a single-payer system. It only studied it. And then the Future Now group doesn't actually uh, hasn't actually endorsed that single-payer bill and um, have, have, hasn't said anything about what legislation – uh, they would support. So that that's what we're seeing on the healthcare front. Uh, Democrats saying Republicans should do more and didn't do enough in expanding Medicaid. Uh, and Republicans saying, hey, look, this one example and this one pledge show that Democrats are willing to radically transform the healthcare system when in fact um, there's really no evidence that that's a widespread uh, push. Yeah, it seems like they're trying to tie as many Democrats as possible to uh, some of the Bernie Sanders uh, proposals on health care, uh, whether those Democrats are really fully embracing those or not. In fact, uh, we should tell our listeners that the Republicans bought many website domain names. So it's possible that if you Google your local Democrat who's running for office, you know, state house or state senate, uh, say you're in Nelson Dollar's district, Republican Re- Nelson Dollar covers uh, Kerry and I think some of Apex. His opponent is Julie Von Hafen or Von Hoffen. I, I can't remember how it's pronounced, but the Republicans bought JulieVonHafen.com. And so when you type that in, it will take you instead, not not to the Democrats' website, but to the Republican website, which is called RadicalDemAgenda.com. And there you can read all about the pledge for universal health care and the bill that would cost $72 billion. Well, that's clever of them and uh, probably a bit of a fail on the Democrats' part for not registering their candidate's name as a domain uh, before they announce that they're running for office. Um, yeah, so that's uh, an interesting piece on the legislative races, uh, but the sort of uh, marquee race, at least from a statewide perspective, the, the biggest race that everyone across North Carolina gets to vote on is the race for the NC Supreme Court seat uh, currently held by Republican uh, Justice Barbara Jackson, uh, Anita Earls, formerly of the Southern Coalition for so- for Social Justice, um, is uh, running against her um, and sort of well-known attorney uh, who's uh, 
taken on some gerrymandering cases, taken on uh, other uh, pieces of Republican legislation and uh, successfully challenged them in court. So, well, what are we seeing um, in that race? What are, what are the dynamics looking like for, for these candidates? Well, really what you're seeing is a bit of an own goal, I think. Uh, I think you wrote about this, Colin, yeah. by the uh, the Republican Party. Epic fail. <laughs> <laughs> which was um, earlier this year, they passed a new law getting rid of the primaries only for judicial elections. And a lot of people thought at the time that this was uh, a basically a move in hopes that several different Democrats would sign up to run in this race. Um However, the opposite happened. Only one Democrat, Anita Earl, signed up, and we actually saw another uh, person enter the race as a Republican in Chris Anglin. Um, now, uh, the Republican Party not only you know has very they very vocally endorsed Justice Barbara Jackson, they have also very vocally opposed Chris Anglin, calling him the enemy, pointing out that he was a registered Democrat until just a couple days or weeks before he entered the race as a Republican. Someone even called him incompetent and couldn't tie his own tie. I believe that was uh, David Lewis. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, his campaign is being run by a Democratic operative from here in Raleigh. And uh, just re- people who are basically Republican insiders don't see a lot of reason to believe that he is a legitimate Republican. Um, however, I don't know how much that news is really getting out of the Raleigh media market and making its way into other parts of the state. I mean, obviously, we've been writing about this race a lot here. The TV stations in the Raleigh and Durham and Triangle area have been you know, doing a lot of stuff about it. But I don't know how much attention the Supreme Court race has gotten in places like Wilmington and Asheville and Greensboro and everywhere in between. Um, so you're actually seeing right now Chris Anglin is actually polling in second place, at least according to one poll that we saw from Spectrum News. Um, Anita Earls was in first and then England second and then Jackson third and there's a ton of undecided voters still it's very, it's clearly a pretty low information race um, and this is also the first year thanks to another recent legal change by the legislature that the candidates party affiliations will be on the ballot so in such a low information race where you have so many people undecided and such a split state I mean we're we're a very evenly divided state you have one Democrat, two Republicans. So probably just if you look at it mathematically speaking, the Democrat has a pretty good chance of winning just because there's no chance for Democrats to split their votes. They only have one choice if they, you know, just want to support their party. So, and of course, the hope of Republicans, I think, in uh, setting up the system the way they did, was they're hoping that, you know, not that people want to run against an incumbent justice, but since it was a wide open field for Democrats, then perhaps there would be five, maybe even 10 Democrats, and they would split their vote. And that turned out not to be the case. No other Democrats filed. Exactly. Well, and we, we, we wrote at the time, too, there was also uh, kind of some... Uh, an outside political group that was sending flyers around to Democratic lawyers, trying to convince them to run. But um, I, I don't know what happened behind the scenes, but clearly the Democratic Party came out with, you know, only one candidate. Uh, I don't know if they had to, you know, very strongly <laughs> convince yeah. any potential candidates Promise not to judicial run. appointments to somebody <laughs> if only they would not sign their name up to run for yeah, Supreme who Court. Knows? Who knows? But uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's made for an interesting race. And, um, and it's interesting that Anglin has sort of, at least in that one poll, edged out Barbara Jackson, uh, which may entirely be a gender preference thing, perhaps, if you have no other information than the names of the candidates when you're confronted with uh, right. two Republicans um, in a choice. Right, exactly. Um, yeah, you just you see the names there and you say, oh, well, here are my choices. Uh, 
yeah, who knows who knows what inspires yeah. people to vote. But then also you've seen just really, really one-sided spending in this race. And I don't know if that's a sign that Republican groups have just kind of thrown in the towel and decided that it's basically a lost cause. Um, the Brennan Center for Justice, which is based out of New York University and analyzes judicial races all across the country, is tracking spending on this race. And uh, I just checked their numbers right before we started podcasting here. Uh, there's a liberal group called NC Families First that has so far spent over $700,000 running ads for in, in favor of Anita Earls and no outside groups that have spent any money on Barbara Jackson. Um, and then both the Jackson and the Earls campaigns have spent around 40, 50 ish thousand dollars of their own money. Yeah. And I know Jackson is trying very hard to portray herself as more Republican. You know, really we get like the, the banjo ads where there's a jingle about how the incumbent judge is such a fair judge. And in this case, the, the one Barbara Jackson ad I've seen is, uh, it's about immigration. It says stop the liberals. And it's very much more sort of a political ad than a look at me. I'm a great impartial judge. Yeah. It does take a very partisan tone, which is usually what you see from those outside groups, from the, the dark money super PACs that are throwing their money around in these races. But this year there are none of those that are coming to her defense. So clearly her campaign decided that they need to get in on that themselves. Yeah, and of course, the stakes are pretty high in this because you currently have a four to three majority for Democrats on the Supreme Court. Obviously, the Supreme Court has uh, become the final arbiter in a lot of uh, controversial state laws that are challenged as unconstitutional by left-leaning groups. Uh, so they already have an advantage on the Supreme Court, even if Barbara Jackson were to get reelected. Um, but if she loses, then it becomes a five to two. And the way the seats are up for reelection, it looks like I think Republicans wouldn't be able to possibly win back control till 2022 at the earliest so uh it's it, yeah this it could, could be have bad very far-reaching yeah. consequences um into yeah easily into the next uh you know whoever wins the governor's race after 2020 you know several legislative elections down the line this this could still be uh you know holding <laughs> yeah know, and, exactly and, and it, it would also sort of a loss for jackson would preclude any sort of change to the structure of the Supreme Court. There's been a lot of talk about the possibility of court packing. Now, I should stress that Republicans say they're not talking about that. That's right. not something they're considering. Uh, but Democrats are worried that they do have the authority to add two more seats to the Supreme Court. If the judicial vacancies, appointment amendment, uh, constitutional amendment passes, then the legislature would have a big role in filling any new judicial seats. So there's some concern that uh, that could happen to sort of tilt the majority back towards uh, Republicans. But if... Um, Earls ends up winning. You can only really add, I think, constitutionally two seats. So that sort of right. uh, closes the door on, on that option, even if Republicans change their minds and, and decided they wanted to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the, the amendments are obviously a huge thing. I I went and early voted uh, last weekend and there was this really frantic poll worker who ran up to me and he was all frazzling. He's like, do you know about the amendments? And I told him, yeah, I, I've been following it. And he's like, okay. And he was handing out democratic literature to people that said exactly what you were saying that, you know, the GOP is going to use the judicial one to pack the court and they're going to, you know, do shenanigans with voter ID. And it was, you know, very partisan leaning literature, but he was just running up to everybody and was very frantically trying to hand out these flyers to them. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, the polls have been interesting so far. We had the incident uh, yesterday in Charlotte with the uh, person who said that uh, someone pulled a gun on them and called them racist slurs. And there's the yeah, rest of that. That case. was insane. Um, yeah, I, I wrote about that yesterday. This uh, a, a GOP activist uh, whose name is Derek Partee um, in Charlotte 
was out at the polls uh, working on behalf of some Republican candidates there, handing out flyers, convincing people that, you know, they should vote for the Republicans in their races. And uh, he is a black man. And he said these three people were at the polls and they were taking photos. And uh, Mr. Partee's also a retired cop. And so he thought these people were a little sketchy. So as cops are wont to do, he went to go get their license plate number of their car. And um, it just exploded from there. Uh, a guy got out of the car uh, who had you know, a gun and a holster on his hip, started screaming profanities at him, started screaming racial slurs at him. Uh, Partee takes out his phone, starts taking photos of him, um, and the people get out and run away. It turns out later that um, it was just a BB gun that he had on his hip, uh, but the police are still charging him. Um, and also the FBI is looking into possible federal charges as well. Obviously, the FBI handles a lot of civil rights violations and things like that. Um, yeah. so, so don't don't bring your gun to the polls and wave it around. It's certainly not a good idea for anybody. Right. Well, you know, actually, I talked to uh, Pat Gannon, a uh, friend of the podcast and the uh, the spokesman for the elections board. And he said there's actually no statewide law on guns at polling places he said obviously if it if the polling place is somewhere like a school where it's normally illegal to have a gun anyways definitely don't bring your gun to somewhere where it's illegal to have your gun but i voted a baptist church where perhaps they're more right. okay with that exactly and if they don't if they don't have anything posted saying no guns allowed and if there's no local rules or ordinances about you know restricting where you can have guns um then you could so you know check yeah. Uh, with your local board of elections, uh, if you're a volunteer, if you're a voter, whatever. Uh, but in any way, don't be threatening people at the polls. Yeah. That's always not okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Words of advice from Domingo. Included, <laughs> while we're on the topic of things that you shouldn't do at the polls, uh, Rashawn has been looking into an interesting tweet from uh, State Representative Chris Malone encouraging people to vote for him, but uh, including an interesting photo with the tweet uh, of a ballot. Uh, tell us more about that. So Chris Malone was obviously trying to encourage people to go out, vote early, and vote for him. So he tweeted out a picture of a ballot with his name on it, and the little bubble next to his name was filled in, and there was like, you know, a thumbs up, like, yeah, go Chris Malone. Um, turns out this was a real ballot, and in the state of North Carolina, it is illegal to take photos of ballots at the polling place. Um, laws in place, um, like Will said from our friend Patrick Gannon, he said that these laws help prevent people from kind of buying votes because a photo of the ballot could be used as a receipt. So instead of, you know, Malone kind of being like, sorry, my bad, didn't know this was legal. He says that this was a sample ballot taken at a private residence, then proceeds to tweet out a photo of a sample ballot, which does not have the red watermark on the side of sample ballots distributed by the State Board of Elections. But the real kicker is it doesn't even have his name on the ballot. So this was a ballot for a different district where you couldn't vote for Chris Malone. Right. Um, so also when you look at the ballot, there's like no numbers on the side. There's, it's just a completely different picture that was printed out and it, he just kept going with it and said that there was much ado about nothing, but he does take down the tweets later and they find out who tweeted out, who sent Malone the photo and the guy all he got was like a written warning. But point of the story is don't take pictures 
at the photo at the ballot it's one either. of those things that it is you know it's technically illegal but i don't know if really anyone has ever been charged i think they just kind of reserve it in case there is some sort of vote buying scheme then they can you know charge yeah. pile on the criminal charges like the most they involved, did for but... this guy was just send him a written warning yeah. and i don't think they did that for malone um but yeah he yeah. just Either way, when Went you take your selfies, hole. just, you know, have your I voted sticker. Don't put your ballot yeah, in Yeah, and if you're really determined to tell everyone how you voted, uh, you know, you can print out a sample ballot uh, online and uh, fill it out uh, for fun and uh, do it that way. It's also a nice way to know who, what you want to vote for anyway because you're going to go to the polls and have 30 or 40 things on the ballot. So sometimes it's good to have a visual reminder. And if you print out the sample ballot, you can take a picture of that. So what I think I'm hearing you say is, Guns are okay, but promoting democracy by taking a photo of your ballot is not. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, well, if you know, you have to find a different way to promote democracy because what they're worried about is the vote buying schemes, which, you know, may seem like very much like, yeah, I think, Will, you compared it to Tammany Hall, the old political machines, but it's not that far fetched because a couple years ago I was covering a municipal race um, down in Robison County when there were claims that. Uh, voters had been bribed with $5 coupons to Huddle House to vote for a particular candidate. And that was a post-election uh, controversy uh, down near the South Carolina border. So uh, it can happen. Um, there, yeah, there's also the possibility of, you know, like Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest suggested that there's mass voter fraud and these people impersonating other voter, uh, voters could take photos of the ballot. Yeah, that was, uh, it was like a two or three minute video yeah. uh, posted this week in which Dan Forrest uh basically outlines all the details right. of how you would pull off such a vote buying scheme. I should note that the State Board of Elections has said they had no evidence of that, anything like that ever happening. Uh, but according to Dan Forrest, it could. And that's why we need the voter ID amendment. I was just going to say, if you would like to learn how to commit voter fraud, Dan Forrest has a video out there um, that is educational in that sense. Yeah, certainly interesting. I think it's getting some uh, a little bit of national attention now. Um, so with that, um, you know, normally we get to this point in the podcast and we do headliner of the week. But I think this week, because we're um, right ahead of the uh, election um, and there, like I say, so many different races to uh, pay attention to and keep track of, uh, we're going to do a um, race, race, race of the week. I was going to say race liner, but that makes, doesn't sound very good. Contest of the week. We'll just say race to watch. Of the week, we'll just take that out entirely. All right. um, So uh, let's let's start with Andy. What's what's the uh, race that you're uh, paying attention to that we should be keeping track of? Uh, I've been. I'm just going to throw this congressional race out there. I've been writing about uh, Ted Budd and Kathy Manning. Um, That race is getting interesting. They're both throwing uh, big punches at each other. I'm not. I. I don't know enough about polling to know um, which polls are most accurate or who's up. Um, Based on the demographics of the district, I think uh, Bud has an advantage, but Manning seems to be doing well there. Uh, They've both recently put out um, a bunch of ads, TV ads, and uh, Rashawn and I and our partners, as well as Will and Bill McCarthy over at Duke University, all of us at PolitiFact are paying close attention to that race as well as the district nine race between Mark Harris, Republican Mark Harris, and Democrat Dan McCready, and then uh, the District 2 race here around Raleigh with uh, George Holding and Linda Coleman. Um, I would say, you know, Holding probably has the best, the easiest shot at being reelected. I don't think anyone would argue with that. Uh, Harris and McCready is going to be down to the wire, and I'd say in 
uh, Manning in the Manning uh, Bud race, he has an advantage, but you never know. I mean, there's two weeks is still a lot of time for, you know, emotions to swing one way or another in this country. So we'll see. But that was a not so subtle uh, public service announcement and um, plug for PolitiFact. Yeah. Where Look can we read more. all of the fact checks? There have been so many published this week. You can read them at uh, PolitiFact.com and then scroll down to states and go to North Carolina. We have our own page where we put all of our fact checks there. You can also check them out on news, newsobserver.com. All right. Thanks for that, Andy, with the uh, Manning Bud race uh, as one option for the best race to watch. Uh, Will, what's your pick? Well, I've got kind of a deep cut here for you, but it's one that I've been looking at, um, which is down in the Wilmington area, a state Senate race, not a U.S. congressional race, but a state legislature uh, between uh, the Republican incumbent Michael Lee and his Democratic challenger, Harper Peterson, who's uh, the former uh, mayor of Wilmington. So, you know, he's got some name recognition. The Democrats are counting on him to be one of the people that they need to, you know, flip some seats in the in the General Assembly to get rid of uh, supermajorities, which is, you know, obviously the Democrats' big goal this election cycle. And while we've seen a lot of the national races focusing on, you know, health care and taxes and things like that, the big issue down in Wilmington has been the environment. And it's focused on everything from offshore drilling to, uh, you know, how the state kind of handled the whole coal ash thing, because there's a huge coal ash pit in Wilmington that actually during Hurricane Florence may have flooded a little bit. We read about that. And then obviously the Gen X issue. Um, And environmental groups are pumping a ton of money into this race to help out Harper Peterson. Obviously, Republicans are hitting back with some of their own ads and, uh, you know, TV, mailer, everything to help Michael Lee. And so I think I think that could be a, a fairly interesting one and, uh, you know, could kind of show how effective the environmental messaging is, um, you know, especially in, in some coastal areas where those tend to be bigger issues because all the rivers flow to the coast. Yeah, and if you watch the, the Wilmington media, there's a lot more attention on Gen X and coal ash there just because it has sort of more of a direct effect on the, the drinking water sources than other parts of the state where we're uh, not as excited about those kind of uh, environmental issues. Yeah, yeah. So, All right, the Harper-Peterson-Michael Lee race, uh, one to watch for NC Senate. And uh, next up, Lauren Horsch, who's your pick? So as much as I want to tell you all to go vote for your soil and water conservation districts, uh, which you should do, um, I'm going to highlight a race over in Forsyth County, Uh, in the state Senate, Trudy Wade versus Michael Garrett. Now, Trudy Wade is the incumbent senator. She's a Republican. Um, She's often viewed as one of Berger's right-hand women. Um, But she, there's some ire back in the district, mostly between her and some of the local newspapers, because she's often attacked them, gone after their ability to print public notices. Um, But this this race is interesting, because... Age has come up a little bit in it. Um, Her opponent, Michael Garrett, he's 34, um, and this is one of the most interesting campaign ads I've seen in a while. Uh, Basically, Trudy, there's an ad supporting Trudy Wade that says that Michael Garrett is a mess because he's young and had to move back home with his features a child, a young boy in a young boy's bedroom. Like it's, (laughs) it looks like he's like an eight or ten year old, like in his parents' house throwing a tantrum um, because. According to this ad, I haven't fact-checked the ad completely yet, but Michael Garrett, you know, had to move back home. His dad got him a job, and Michael Garrett is such a mess. 
Um, so it's just very interesting to see that aspect of it playing out, basically just saying, you know, because this guy's young and he maybe had to go back home for a little bit, you know, his life isn't all put together. Um, and you're seeing other interesting ads out of that district at Trudy Wade also just released an ad about her being a veterinarian. Uh, so it's her with a bunch of little cute puppies running around in a field. And at the end, the dog, <laughs> the dogs in the commercial stops and like looks at the camera and then they superimpose a voiceover that says, don't forget, vote for the vet. Yeah, like, in, a, just, in a puppy voice. It's, yes. it's very unexpected. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm not going to imitate the puppy voice, but. I'm Dr. Trudy Wade and I'm doggone proud to represent you in the state Senate. Don't forget. It's just, it's, it's a very interesting race and a lot of people don't necessarily look to the triad for some of these races, but it is a big urban area. And if one of these seats swings, you know, that could mean a lot for either chamber. That would give me pause. Yeah. Oh, nice. Andy. <laughs> Sorry. No. <laughs> All right, moving on. So we've got the uh, the Trudy Raid uh, Michael Garrett race uh, in the Guilford County area. And uh, Rashawn, who's your pick for uh, race to watch? Um, we mentioned it earlier, but I think the one with Representative Bobby Richardson and her challenger, Lisa Stone Barnes. This will be interesting to watch because... Richardson's district was one of the most heavily racially gerrymandered ones, so they redistricted it, and now there's, you know, like Andy said, it's leaning Republican, so they're still out there campaigning, and Lisa Stone Barnes, you know, this isn't her first time running a campaign either. She was the Nash County Commissioner, and she's done a bunch of stuff there, so it'll be interesting to see who comes out the winner, you know, the experience or the newcomer. Yeah, exactly. And, and how do the demographic changes of the district affect, you know, Bobby Richardson's reelection chances? She's certainly, I think, been uh, the heaviest campaigner of the people who are in this sort of weird mode where they were taken from a racially gerrymandered district and into a much more competitive district. I've been looking into the uh, Representative George Graham race with a Republican challenger named Chris Humphrey down in the Kinston area. And George Graham really has sort of disappeared. There's doesn't have a campaign website, doesn't seem to be doing actively campaigning, but Bobby Richardson's had Roy Cooper at her fundraisers and uh, a lot of effort behind trying to, to keep her seat. Yeah, this is one of those seats where I, we people have been talking about the blue wave, but this is one of those seats that show the blue wave may not be as strong as we thought, where the Democrats actually have chances of being unseated. Yeah, there's definitely a, that and a couple others where uh, Democrats are probably more playing defense, even if this is a year that is is sort of going their way on, on some level. So that's that'll be an interesting uh, trend to watch. Uh, well, normally with Headliner, the host gets to, to pick a winner. Um, but uh, since uh, this is uh, election time and uh, we're getting into democracy world, um, I think I'll throw in my own uh, entry and then y'all can tweet us at Under the Dome um, and pick one if you're so inclined, or you can just watch all five of them that uh, we're talking about. So the one I'm, uh, I've been watching closely uh, is sort of related to Hurricane Florence down in the uh, Lumberton and uh, Columbus County areas where uh, State Senator Danny Britt, he's a first-term senator Republican uh, who uh, beat out a Democrat in that uh, particular Senate district uh, two years ago. Uh, he is running for re-election. His opponent is a school board member named John Campbell, no relation to me that I know of. Um, and uh, Mr. Campbell is uh, endorsed by President Barack Obama, one of a few of the legislative candidates that uh, Obama has uh, decided to, to weigh in on. So he's been promoting that pretty heavily. Uh, been hitting Brit over uh, Medicaid expansion type issues as well as education. Uh, but Brit, I think, has a... Um, sort of ace in the hole this year in that he has been one of the most active people 
in uh, Hurricane Florence relief in that area. His campaign ad shows him riding around in a boat with testimonials from people who say he like rescued them uh, during the storm. Um, and so I think that uh, perhaps uh, gives him a bit more of an advantage uh, than he might have had earlier. So it'll be interesting to see if, if sort of the, the indirect impact of Hurricane Florence is that, that Danny Britt and perhaps a couple other uh, Republican incumbents in some of the most uh, storm-impacted counties end up winning. Uh, so to recap, if you're uh, wanting to uh, play along at home and uh, tweet us a vote on Twitter if you're, if you're so inclined. Uh, we have the uh, Ted Budd, Kathy Manning race. Uh, we have the Harper Peterson, Michael Lee Senate race in the Wilmington area. The other Senate race of Trudy Wade and Michael Garrett in the Greensboro area. And the uh, just north of and east of Raleigh um, in Franklin Nash counties, uh, the Lisa Stone Barnes and Bobby Richardson race that Rashawn mentioned, as well as uh, what I just talked about, the Danny Britt um, John Campbell race down in the uh, Lumberton area. So uh, all those worth watching, uh, along with lots of others on election night. So uh, we'll be keeping tabs on them. And I'm sure we'll uh, have a podcast uh, after the election to to go over all the results. So uh, thanks so much for listening to this edition of Domecast. I'm Colin Campbell. We appreciate you uh, taking a listen to our attempt to distill down all the crazy world of North Carolina politics. And we'll talk to you soon. You've been listening to The Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the daily print edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.